Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in the Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on our fall sermon series from the Gospel of John. In a sermon titled, Mistaken Identities, Pastor Bob answers the question, Who is John the Baptist? Bob explains why people thought John was the prophet Elijah. He also explains how John recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God. We'll discuss all that and more today as we dive into John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. Bob, you began your sermon saying that the Apostle John was a celebrity. You compared him to maybe a cross between uh, Martin Luther King and Billy Graham. Uh, Can you justify that for us? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so first of all, Matt, I have to correct you. You you said the Apostle John, but you you mean John the Baptist. John the Baptist, exactly. (laughs) Yes. That's what's so confusing about these passages here uh, that deal with John the Baptist is, you know, we want to keep saying John, 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 and then sometimes we're talking about the author. Sometimes we're talking about John the Baptist, and in fact, some commentators sometimes wonder, you know, is the author talking about John the Apostle? Is is he talking about himself, assuming uh, John, the son of Zebedee, is the author of the gospel? So it is, hmm, it, it does hmm. get kind of confusing, but you're asking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist and, yeah. and why was he a celebrity, and you know, he, John the Baptist, intentionally, seemingly, played the role of a prophet of old. Hmm. Um, He was seen as a a very charismatic reformer. He was calling Israel back to right belief and right action uh, before their covenant God. And a lot of people were responding to his call. And and like I was saying in the sermon, that's um, hard for us to comprehend since we live in a postmodern secular society. A religious reformer's fame and influence only goes so far around here. But in in the first century Israel, uh, this made John the Baptist a potentially potent political and cultural force. Hmm. He was he was quite well known. Uh, so that's why I, I was trying to come up with some kind of comparison that would help us understand uh, his celebrity, his role, and his power uh, in his time. And yet you said that despite his celebrity power and fame, he was a humble guy. What was his secret to his humility? Or how do you even know he was humble? Yeah. I mean, so one one of the ways that we can talk, we know that he was humble because he refused. Uh, I mean, even when people came to him, you know, they said, who are you? I mean, first off, he's, I'm not the Messiah, right? I mean, mm. like he, he knows, I'm not right. the Messiah. Well, then are you Elijah? Nope. Well, how about the the prophet? Nope. You know, so like we, we know that he did not... Uh, you know, accept uh, other identities uh, besides his own. Um, How did he do that? And we we know that um, the Gospel of Matthew says that he actually wore a garment of camel's hair and he lived out in the wilderness and ate bugs. Wow. Right, so so he intentionally lived the life of an ascetic, what we would think of as a sort of an ascetic hermit or monk. Hmm. Um, Jesus mentions how John the Baptist did not have um, eating and drinking; he did not make feasting a part of his ministry like Jesus did. So John the Baptist treated his body roughly, and he refused the trappings 
of celebrity and status. And, you know, that that can help, you know, if we're talking about how do you remain humble? Well, mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 you do that. But more importantly, I think he remained humble because he remained focused on his calling. And, you know, it, it's often when people lose focus on their original calling when things start to go bad. Now, you've, you've heard the term mission creep, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, you, you start out doing one thing, right? And then you end up changing the goal uh, in the middle of the work or once that work has been accomplished in order to achieve something else that you didn't set out to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is obvious to think about with with uh, politicians, right? They oftentimes get involved originally in politics, you know, usually for all the right reasons mm-hmm. uh, because, of, or, you know, one or two very specific policy goals they have and 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 when they those are reached um they they realize well now the mission's different now it's become about acquiring more power and influence right the more power and influence i have the more good i can do mm. right um but but john the baptist didn't suffer from mission creep uh he hmm. knew he knew why he was there right to prepare israel for the coming Messiah, simply to call them to repentance and to baptize them. I mean, and, and he, he didn't say, you know, maybe I could move into Judea and, and do a lot more good, right? Mm. He, he didn't do that. He, he, right. he wasn't susceptible to that kind of temptation. He stayed laser-focused on his calling, and, and when you do that, that can keep you from getting too big for, for your britches. So why did people think he was Elijah? You know, his posture was much like that of Elijah's in terms of uh, at certain points in Elijah's ministry, he was sort of a, a recluse or a, a hermit out in the wilderness. He, uh, John the Baptist dressed like a, one of these kind of crazy wild prophets of old. Uh, he, he directly challenged Israel's leadership, calling uh, Herod out about his marriage, much like the prophet Elijah did mm-hmm. about Jezebel. Um, but more importantly, people were primed to look for a second Elijah. Um, because this was the final promise uh, from the final prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, that Elijah would come again uh, as a precursor to the the great and dreadful uh, day of the Lord, of God mm. coming back to Israel. And so, you know, these were tense times, right? That the, the temple was being completed after many, many decades. This incredible, beautiful structure. But but the Romans, these idolatrous Gentiles, these are the ones in charge. Israel wanted a political independence. They wanted to reclaim their former glory. And they wanted leaders who weren't corrupt and wouldn't mm-hmm. collaborate with the Romans. I mean, the high priests and the local elite of Jerusalem, they were all collaborators. And so many in this generation, John and Jesus' generation, and actually like most generations, believed that the day of the Lord was at hand. So they were primed to look mm. for signs of what they considered to be the end. And John the Baptist, of, of all the different you know candidates, he seemed to fit the bill, at least of Elijah, if not mm. of the Christ or the prophet that Moses promised to come. Well, let's talk about his his name, John the Baptize, Baptist, or yep. I've heard it said that maybe it's John the Baptizer is what the Greek says. Yep. Um, but why, why was he known for this? Would people come specifically to him to be baptized? And more importantly, what was baptism before Jesus? Yeah, so so people did come to him specifically to be baptized. I mean, he was preaching and he was talking, so it wasn't just simply like, "Hey, you know, come through the water and get some get some water, and then go your own way." You know, I mean, he th- think of think of this as sort of like a revival, or a, you know, a revival camp meeting uh, in in the old days on the frontier. Like that that's what this was, 
And, and John was baptizing people as a sign of their repentance and commitment to living purified lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was known for this because this was unique. This hadn't been done previously in this way. So, you know, we, we have washing uh, for purification. Uh, it, it became an important part of Jewish religiosity because in mm. the Old Testament— uh, there were commands for washing, but it was only for the priests when they're serving in the tabernacle. We just talked about how there is this this uh, laver for for washing in the tabernacle that was set up by Moses. But the religious authorities, since the completion of the Old Testament, had decided to intensify the practice of the law, meaning if it's good for the priests, it's good for the people. So there were lots of ritual washings for pious Jews. But the only time people were actually baptized by someone else was when non-Jews were converting to Judaism. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it suggested an, an end to the old life and the beginning of a new life, you know, entering the, the, the covenant with Israel's God in addition to circumcision. Um, but John was calling all Jews to be baptized, which was kind of a, a, a crazy and scandalous thing because that's suggesting that none of them were living the right way. None of them were living in, in real true covenant relationship with Yahweh. They all needed a new life and a new, a new cleansing. Um, so that's what he was doing. That's why it was, that's why it really stood out. And again, it's important to recognize that this was a baptism in preparation for the Messiah. This was not an end in itself. This was not the goal. This mm-hmm. was simply getting people ready for the Christ who was coming. So, and, and they used that term baptism? Was part yeah, of what they baptizer. Yeah, I mean, you're right. So, you know, it, it's, um, oh, I forget the term, the, the, the term in grammar when you take, mm-hmm. a, you take a noun and you make it a verb. Um, yeah, I forget too. I should know this. Anyway, that that's yeah. how much of, that's how much of Greek works. So oftentimes when we when we see that, um, you know, we we are actually we're, we're seeing you know the baptizer, not mm-hmm. the Baptist. Right. So uh, let's go back to this idea of, of mistaken identities. Uh, when asked who he was, uh, John replied that he was the voice crying out in the wilderness. He said, "Make straight the way of the Lord." What did John know that others didn't? Mm, yeah, let me talk about that. But first, the word is a participle. Oh, and, good. Uh, and I'm sorry that I forgot about that because participles too, are—they're all over—they're all over Greek, and it's—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's an easy way of, of talking. And so, in Koine Greek, everything's a participle. Okay, <laughs> so. What was John meaning when he was saying he's a voice crying out in the wilderness? You know, that's from Isaiah 40. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so John knew that Messiah was coming and he was simply the forerunner. And so, like I said, a lot of people thought that the Messiah was coming, mm-hmm. right? But John actually had warranted knowledge, right? He, John knew, he really he knew well, because John talked about the one who sent him. And so it seems mm. like he's talking about God himself or an angel um, because he was told to – he said, the one who told me to baptize said that the one on whom the, the Spirit comes and dwells on him, that is the that is the mm. Christ. That's the one who will baptize in the Spirit. So he knows he's there in preparation for the Messiah, the one baptizing in Holy Spirit. So therefore, John – is able to see his ministry as one of preparation pictured in Isaiah 40, the same as the, the prophets there um, 
talking about in Isaiah 40, that he's blazing a trail for God to return to his people. From outside Israel, he's coming back to his people to Israel. And that's one of the reasons why John positioned himself outside of the traditional boundaries of Israel. He's on the other mm. side of the Jordan so that people can come into Israel now, baptized and cleansed and ready for the Messiah who is also coming to Israel. Do we know how long that period was of him baptizing people in preparation for Jesus? No, we we actually we, we don't. Um the best we know, we assume that Jesus' ministry was at, uh, around three years uh, because mm -hmm. uh, the Gospel of John talks about three different Passovers, and and all of the Gospels begin Jesus' public ministry when John is already well-known, and, and we know in the middle of Jesus' ministry, John is imprisoned and then beheaded. So John's ministry ends in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. So there is some overlap there. Um, you know, so it, it, it's it's you know we we should conclude that John was doing this for at least a year or two, um, mm. but we're not sure how much more than that. Right. Okay. Um, and what is the significance of untying or tying a sandal strap? Yeah, yeah. So where where John said that there's someone here you don't even recognize. Yeah. Uh, whose whose uh, sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And and as I mentioned in the sermon, that that was um, something a, a Jewish slave would not have to do for their master. You know, so hmm. we can think about the ancient world where you know people are walking around in sandals and. Um, you know, the, the, the ground and roads, they're, they're filthy and there's human waste and animal waste and everything else. So washing feet, having clean feet, uh, once you came inside from the public was very important. And Jewish slaves were exempt in Israel, were exempt from having to wash their master's feet because it was considered too menial and too disgusting. And what's so crazy is that in Genesis 18, you go back and you look at where God and two angels visit Abraham, before they go to Sodom to mm -hmm. investigate, right? They they show up and Abraham brings them water to wash their own feet, hmm. right? Abraham doesn't wash their feet, even right. though he, he has a sense that there's something special about them. So I can imagine rabbis uh, at this time saying, well, if Abraham didn't wash God's feet, you know, Jew <laughs> slaves don't have to wash their master's feet, right? I mean, it, yeah, right. that's from, from, from greater to lesser and lesser to greater argument. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. for John to say that he's unworthy to untie uh, Christ's sandal strap, right? He's saying that he's far lower than a slave in comparison to him. So so whatever, you know, the rubric people had in terms of social status and hierarchy, John is saying, this guy blows it out of the water. And, and mm. he's so far up here, and I'm so far down here. And that and it's crazy when Jesus says of, of all those born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Yeah. Right? Now he's 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 the greatest. Um, but of course he's less than the the least in the kingdom of heaven. So wow. anyway, you have this, you know, this picture of status that John is trying to articulate to kind of rec help help them recognize that the Christ is gonna blow your mind. Hmm. And and how did he recognize that Jesus was indeed the Messiah? Well, like I said, you know, J John mentioned in the gospel here in John that um, the one who sent him, and he doesn't say who sent him, but we assume this is an angel or a voice from heaven. The one who sent him to baptize told him that the one on whom the, the Holy Spirit falls and mm -hmm. remains, and that's important, falls and remains, mm -hmm. this is the one who will baptize with 
Holy Spirit. And so that's that's how John recognized Jesus. And there's um, some physical manifestation of that then. Yes. So that's what's what's interesting is that the other gospels, the synoptics, talk about John baptizing Jesus and the spirit descending like a dove. Uh, and a voice coming from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John, the gospel, doesn't uh, have that uh, passage hmm. for us, right? So so John the Baptist here is referencing something that isn't recorded in the gospel of John, but it's recorded in the other three gospels. Hmm. Um, what's also interesting is that in Luke's account, Jesus and John the Baptist are distant cousins, Right, their their oh, mothers yeah. are related, and they know right, each other, right. and they visited each other before right. their births. And John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb right. as Mary walks in. So, I mean, maybe the families never met again. Maybe hmm. Jesus and John didn't know about each other, or maybe they did, and John the Baptist just didn't know that Jesus was actually the Christ. You know, maybe he, oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth. I'm, you know, he's a distant cousin. And right. then all of a sudden he baptizes him and he sees the Spirit descend on him. Hmm. Um, but the, the important thing for the Gospel of John is that John the Baptist is saying, I saw evidence. I have external verification. This one is the Christ. And when he recognizes um, Jesus is the Christ, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. So what is he saying when he says that? Yeah, I mean, that that's actually a harder question than it sounds because, you know, we probably think, well, it just means, you know, that's, this is the sacrificial offering mm-hmm. of God. And that's, that's true, but, you know, it takes a little while to get there. I mean, which sacrifice would John be talking about? Because in the Old Testament, sin offerings were not lambs. Um, mm-hmm. th- there, were, there were offerings of lambs at the morning and the evening at the temple, but that's it. Um, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was not a lamb. Um, lambs were killed and eaten at Passover, but mm-hmm. those weren't considered to be sin offerings or sacrifices to God. The, the, the household ate the lamb. Hmm. Um, however, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so many commentators think that, that that he's picking up on that imagery, right? Because the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 will make atonement for the people and bear their sins. So we think that that's where this image of Lamb of God means. But for us, looking back in hindsight, we can see that the Lamb of God is this innocent, perfect, meek sacrifice offered up to God to take away the sins of the world. And and John somehow was recognizing that this was the case. Jesus is the one whose life will be taken to make atonement for the rest of us. And so we can echo with what we hear in Revelation, right? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So clearly John was captivated by Jesus. And I'm wondering, what can we learn from John about being captivated by Jesus? Well, you know, my point was that whatever captivates us draws our best energy and and Mm -hmm. shapes our identity. And and if we are captivated by Jesus, like John the Baptist was, then we will have a firm sense of ourselves and our role. We will recognize that we have dignity and good work to do, uh, but, but we won't make more of ourselves than we ought because we are making much of Jesus. And I guess the, the question for us is, do we want that? Mm. Uh, you know, Do we want to be captivated by Jesus? Or is he a nice add-on to our upwardly mobile, coastal, global, elite life? Hmm. Right? Are, are we really more captivated by career success or you know, really awesome experiences and vacations or domestic bliss? 
Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, what captivates us is, you know, what, we, what we're focusing on and where we set our gaze. And so John the Baptist was looking for Messiah, and when he found him, he kept focusing on him. So if we want to be captivated by Jesus, let's be looking for him, right? Mm-hmm. And let's ask the Father to be captivated by Jesus because the Father's captivated by Jesus, right? The Father's always, look yeah. at my son. This is my son that I love, mm. right? And he wants everyone else to see him and be captivated by him. So I think the Father delights to answer that prayer of ours, make me captivated by Jesus. Mm. And so then let's give ourselves that put the, that put Jesus in front of us. Give ourselves the things that put Jesus in front of us, like, you know, gathering together in his name in worship, meditating over his word, serving others in his name, you know, coming back to prayer throughout the day, these kinds of things. Um, let's let's do that, which puts Jesus in front of us so that we might be captivated by him. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, certainly a worthy worthy uh, goal for us. I have a question here, and I'm actually not sure exactly what was the context I was thinking of this question, but let me ask you this. It seems random, but maybe not. <laughs> Are we responsible? What's your favorite color? <laughs> yeah, what's your exact? <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> no, uh, this is one of those big ones. You know, Are we responsible for the salvation of others? Yeah, I you know I think that question is coming from where we talked about you know you are not the Christ. Oh, okay, I am. That's, I am that's not why. the Christ. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Um, and and the answer is thank God no, we're not responsible for the salvation of others, right? Mm. And pastors particularly need to be reminded of this all the time. And um, you know, it, it, there's a nuance that we find in the book Boundaries. It, it's mm-hmm. helpful pointing out. We've talked about this a little bit before, right? We we are not responsible for people. Um, We're not responsible for people's salvation, but we are responsible to people, right? We're not Mm. responsible for, but we're responsible to. We are responsible to show them Jesus. We are responsible to love them well. And as uh, an elder in Christ's church, uh, both you and I, right, we Mm -hmm. are responsible to feed the sheep under our care. We will be held accountable for how we operated as under shepherds of Jesus. But we are not in charge of anyone's salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Even our own. So for myself, I'm responsible for sticking close to Jesus, for looking to him, for soaking in his word and participating in his body. But he is ultimately responsible for my salvation, thank God. Mm-hmm. So it's very important for us to remind ourselves that we are not the Christ. So yeah. much of our discontent comes from being misaligned between what we think we are responsible for versus what we are actually called to and enabled to do. And recognizing you are not the Christ, rather than giving you a pass and you know not try or not do hard things and just kind of like check out from the world. No, no, it enables you to move toward tough situations because it's not on your shoulders to fix. Mm. All you need to do is try to be helpful. Try to discern where Jesus is working and you join him there, right? You don't have to be the solution. Mm-hmm. And that so that that means that that's something that all of us can do in every situation. Just be helpful. Be helpful and look for Jesus, right? It's as easy as that. Yeah, well the, your the title of your sermon is Mistaken Identities and we, yep. we often get our identities wrong, but how do we get our identities right? Yeah, we get our identities right by getting Christ's identity right. Mm-hmm. And and so 
on the one hand, it's sort of like what the crowds were doing at John, what the elite were doing at John the Baptist and the crowds, right? They were mistaking him for the Christ, and we mistake other things for the Christ as well. Various celebrities, experts, politicians, political parties, ideologies, none of these are the Christ, right? We, we can't look to these to solve our deepest problems, and we ought not to be captivated by them. And then on the other hand, we are not the Christ, right? The world mm-hmm. is not on our shoulders. We are limited both in our responsibilities and our abilities. Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ. He is Lord. And he's also Savior, the Lamb of God. The Christ loves you, mm-hmm. right? The one who actually does have the world on his shoulders, he's capable of having the world on his shoulders. He'll put you on his shoulders as well. So as you get these mm. categories right and, and you live in you learn to live in your lane, right? Your life becomes something beautiful to live. And often, not always, but often a delight, right? You, you, mm. you, you don't have these expectations on yourself that you can't live up to, but you know the one who who can live up to them. So your life actually becomes something that draws other people to Jesus because you're captivated by him. And we say, come and see. Come and see. Yeah. Oh, another good sermon, Bob. Thanks so much. And thanks for your time again today. You got it. The title of Bob's sermon is Mistaken Identities. It's part of our fall sermon series from the Gospel of John. You can find that sermon and all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. You can also find a link on our website to ask questions for this podcast. We're really glad that you're tuning into these podcasts, and we hope that these conversations are helping you develop a closer relationship with Jesus. If you have questions about the Christian faith or just need someone to talk to, we've got pastors, elders, youth leaders, and a women's care team ready to help. We're just an email or phone call away. If you have a prayer request, you can also go directly to our website at gracesouthbay.com and submit your requests using the prayer button at the top of the website. And if you're new to Grace South Bay, we would encourage you to fill out the Connect card and one of our pastors will reach out to you. And of course, we'd love to have you join us for Sunday morning worship. We meet at 9 a.m. at Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast. So stay tuned, stay connected, and be encouraged knowing that nothing can separate you from God's love. We look forward to our next time together. Now, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.